0: Hello, and welcome to Rockeret episode 23. So glad you could join us. One of the coolest things I've come across on the internet in the last few months is this website called Contextual Dissemination. If you Google it, you will get there. Contextual Dissemination is a punk fanzine archive with scans of things that I thought I would never, ever see. We were talking early issues of forced exposure, conflict, your flesh when their creators were still in their diapers. Lots of other killed by death style goodies, just unreal content. Anyway, it's a fitting name, Contextual Dissemination, because many of the best music fanzines were very context specific. They covered a particular beat. Their creators never set out to make timeless content. And that's definitely true of my next two guests, Miss Lynn and Paul Blowfish-Lavelle. They are the pair behind Boston Groupie News, which was a legendary DIY rag that originally published... Between 1975 and 1981, and Miss Lynn and Blowfish were Beantown scenesters, and they loved pre-punk and punk music coming out of that scene, and their writing embodies the spirit of that music in the way that the best Golden Age music fanzine writing did. And we're talking gossip, spontaneity, lowbrow humor, unbridled fandom, gut-level human response, and just making something for the simple pleasure of entertaining oneself and one's friends. Boston Groupie News was definitely an inspiration on Gerard Cosloy's conflict, and reading it is a guess for me, 45 years later, in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Miss Lynn and Paul are definitely lifers. They are still at it. They've been publishing online since 2002 at bostongroupienews.com. It gets updated frequently, and content-wise, it's the same deal. Really good live reviews, features, and local gig listings with tons of humor and spirit, these guys are definitely lifers who are living in the present. Talking to Miss Lynn and Paul was a ton of fun for me, and I hope you enjoy our chat. And if you do, can ask a favor please leave a rating or a review. It is much appreciated. Thank you so much and enjoy. Miss Lynn and Paul, it is a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. I'm excited to learn a lot about Boston Groupie News and the Boston scene at the time and your involvement with it then and your involvement with it now. Miss Lynn, it might be great to start with you. When did you become involved in the Boston music scene in the 70s?
1: Well, I went to see a band. Oh, I went to see the New York Dolls that were playing in Ashland in 1974 or 75. Uh, I lived out in the suburbs with my parents, and they were playing in the next town over. And the the warm-up band was a local band called Ready Teddy. And I was... Besides the fact that I was absolutely bowled over by the New York Dolls, I was also really impressed by this band Ready Teddy. So my friend and I started talking to them and it was sort of like the whole groupie thing just took hold and we were saying, oh, can we come and visit you at your house in Boston? And they said, sure. So we started going to hang out with them. And then of course, seeing seeing them play, at the RAT and places like that. So this would be 74, 75. And then uh, I met Willie Loco Alexander while I was at Ready Teddy's house and I started to go see him. And then that just snowballed into getting completely involved in all the different bands that were playing, particularly at the RAT. Then I met this woman, Helene Saad, who said, well, I have an apartment in Harvard Square. And if you want to share it with me, you can. So I moved into Harvard Square, Cambridge, and was able to go to gigs every single night. And that was pretty much how it all started for me.
0: Was the word punk being thrown around at that time? Is that a word that you would hear or it was a bit too soon for that?
1: No, yeah, no, definitely not. It was too early for that. I don't know, you know, Ready Teddy was more sort of, rock, glam influenced, but they were also different. Like, they weren't garage, but how would you describe them?
2: Well, let me just say, this is a real big point about what's punk and what's not punk and when it came in. Ready Teddy was out there in 74. Of course, no one's calling them punk in 1974. In groups like The Real Kids, Fox Pass, Third Rail, in Willy Loco... They were all playing in Boston, and there was a scene before the word punk was being used. During this period, around 75, just a little bit later, the word punk started to crop up. And we saw it in this James Isaacs, who wrote for the Boston Phoenix. He started using the the punk because he heard it in other places because of the New York and stuff. But it was in the middle of the scene. The scene was up and going. And the word punk sort of came along in the middle of it. That's what I would say.
1: Yeah. So At that early, in those early years, like 75, there wasn't really any punk, but I would say by 76, 77, 78, it was starting to change to be more punk-like.
2: Well, okay. Punk being the way the Ramones sound, that was the difference. People in Boston didn't sound like punk until after the Ramones. And the... The second wave of Boston groups, we call them the second wave, but they would be Unnatural acts and La Peste. They sounded mm-hmm. punk. Yeah. Before that, groups like the Real Kids, they sounded like the inv- English Invasion. Willie Loco was, you know, sounded like a little bluesy rock. They all sounded, uh, the Ready Teddy sounded like the Who. It wasn't until that second wave that specifically there was a punk sound in Boston.
0: Was there a sense that these bands were, even the, the pre-punk bands like Ready Teddy and Real Kids, was there still a sense that these were somehow alternative to what was happening on, you know, what you would hear on the radio? Was there still a sense that this was like slightly outsider weird music?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And to be clear, they were labeled punk after punk came in. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we were listening to, or we were... The only thing you could hear on the radio was olivia newton john like things yeah. like that so <laughs> this, james this taylor was, yeah and this so this was a, a really happy alternative that the i call it garage the the real kids and the nervous eaters and those bands were more garage sound uh than punk but it was an absolute alternative then there were other bands that early on like the mez and other bands that were sort of becoming artsy influenced and different, mm. you know, influences, not garage but not punk, but getting sort of more and more alternative as we went along.
2: Yeah, and I would add here that one of the distinguishing characteristics is, before the Real Kids and Ready Teddy and Third Rail and Fox Pass, the original Boston wave of uh, punk groups, you would go to a club, you would see a cover group. There was no original rock per se. And the difference was they were playing garage rock and it was original. And that was a distinguishing character. Yes.
0: Was it a risky thing to be involved in this kind of music, in this scene? Was, it, was there an element of danger even in the mid-70s? Oh,
2: yeah, yes. absolutely. <laughs> we were... And Linda, oh my God. I always tell this story. In Boston, you would have to worry about jocks and disco people beating up the punks that's what always was happening uh the center of punk in boston was the rap and also fenway park is in the middle of right next to the rat so okay. when fenway park would get out and all these jocks and sports fans would come out they would love to beat up the punks a lot of punks got beat up during that period
1: yeah and there was a disco across the street in kenmore square across the street from the rat um i can't remember the name of it but there was a disco there. lucifer's so, katie's yeah so we had all the sort of anti or these people that were into sports and disco and every sort of run-of-the-mill middle of the road thing and then we were in the middle of that and they didn't like it and they felt i guess threatened or something so we would get things thrown at us we would people would drive by and scream insults at us and there have been actual stories where people were beaten up Absolutely no reason.
2: Oh, David Minahan of the neighborhoods of Vita. I gotta tell you a story, which I always say. Uh Linda used to have a friend who did a few of the groupy early groupie nooses with her uh, Pam Green, and they would go out to clubs all the time. So I had a car and I would, I'm driving Linda to the club. So we're in Kenmore Square going to the rat. We're going across the street. I'm walking with Linda and Pam Green. And of course, the usual Linda's dressed in a jean jacket, black tights, usually, <laughs> right? and looking punk for the for 1976, you know? Yeah. And so the car goes by, the inevitable happens. Hey, you effing whores, you, you this, this, and that. And so, of course, I'm thinking, let me get across the street into the club and get away from this. Linda goes, hey, you small dick piece of shit. You don't tell me, I'm gonna tell you. And she starts walking towards them. It's like, please don't let this be happening. But they took off but that's what you would get if you were walking down the street and you look like a punk in 76
1: and i actually have a story where uh this was later this was probably 78 and uh 79 and i had my roommate was jimmy dufour uh who had a radio studio in uh Kenmore square called radio beat i mean a recording studio in Camo square called radio beat And I was home and I was sleeping and he came home and he had, he was with Johnny Angel and Johnny Angel came into my room, opened the door and in my room and he had like a black eye or something. And I said, what the, what happened? So I got up and I went in the kitchen with them and they were walking from the rat and these jocks followed them and were yelling at them and everything. It's funny because Jimmy was a skinny little thing that, Looked like Johnny Rotten, but um, Johnny Spoken. Angel was a, a a bodybuilder even back then. Uh, but Jimmy carried a baseball bat in his truck. So they followed Jimmy and Johnny to the truck, screaming and yelling at them, taunting them. And then Jimmy took out the baseball bat and went at them and they had a fight. But then the guys ran away and they got in their truck and came home and told me about it. But that's what would happen all the time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it was worth it.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was exciting. <laughs> no regrets. It, it was absolutely exciting during that period. And, you know, it's funny. The best period I loved in the Boston scene was just before punk broke. You know, say punk broke, say, obviously, in 77. And before everyone knew about it, we were out there looking at the music and having a ball. When Once the word punk got out there, that's when you know the violence
0: started yeah mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> i want to get to the rats and some of these venues and some of these musicians who were kind of central to the scene but i also want to ask about the boston groupie news what inspired you miss lynn to start boston groupie news
1: well so what happened was um this one-sided one-page sheet showed up at the clubs called the Boston Groupie News, and it wasn't mine. And it was really a bunch of nasty gossip. And people went crazy over it. And everyone wondered who did it. And that sort of went on for, I don't know, maybe a year or so, went on for quite a while. No. What, before you did the next issue? Yeah. Really, that long? I, I can't remember to tell you the truth. But anyway, <laughs> um, as, as I always tell the story, I was madly in love with Willie Loco Alexander at the time, and he was at my place one Saturday morning, and he said, you know, everyone thinks you do it, so you might as well just do another one and start doing it yourself, and at that point, I would do anything to, you know, be good in Willie's eyes, so I started doing it, and I just sort of followed the same logo, terrible, ugly logo, (laughs) and uh,
0: distinct, unique, yeah.
1: yeah and the you know ty- i had a typewriter so i just typed it out and um brought it to the printers and had to print it out so i wanted to do it anonymously so i would just take it in the afternoon and go to the different clubs like the rat the the club cantones and i would put them on the cigarette machine during the day when no one was around and then at night people would come to see the bands and they would read it and people were outraged at first because you know it was insulting and mean it was mean gossip and it wasn't something that i really liked doing but it sort of is you know how it is people like to read that kind of stuff
0: (laughs) yeah
2: so uh, the first issue was not done by miss so tell him who did the first issue
1: oh so the very first issue we find out many many years later decades later Forty um, years later was uh, actually um, John Macy, who was the lead singer for the band Fox Pass, and oh, well. he had put it out somehow with his girlfriend as a joke. But people just, when it came out, everyone was dying to know who did it, and you know who was going to be in the next one and what was going to be said about them. So. I you know, was out there all the time. I was out every night watching all the bands. I knew all the gossip, I knew all the news. So I certainly had plenty of stuff to write about. And I wrote more about things like who was putting out a record, who was in the studio, anything like that that I knew, as well as the nasty gossip. Um, <laughs> and uh, so that's how it started.
2: And I have to add in the first issue, John Macy, wrote horrible things about himself so nobody, he's because he didn't want anyone to think that he did it so he, yeah you know john macy's a big you know ego fat-headed egotistical piece of crap and you know no one didn't think it was him either so he got away with it
0: <laughs> i love it and all for all those years he didn't say anything about like hey i started this how come you're picking it up and doing it it was just years later you guys found out yeah i love it
2: he never he never let it out. It was literally 40 years later, we interviewed him. It's in the BGN online where we interviewed him finally again and he admitted came out with the story,
0: you yeah? <laughs> Wow. You guys so, mentioned Boston Phoenix a little bit ago. Were there any other publications covering this kind of music locally?
2: Locally, no. No, That's, That's I nothing. think we got all that uh, or any information from the Phoenix, basically. Now there was Boston after Doc that turned into the Phoenix for a while. There were, I'm not good on the timing of this. There was the Boston Phoenix and the Boston after Doc, and they combined right along at that period. So there might have been two papers there for uh, six months or
1: something. But basically, it's the Phoenix and all those years. The and it was James Isaac's column that was covering the local yeah. music. The the entire paper was all. Covering all kinds of music and, you know, movies and theater and everything. Uh, mm-hmm. but Jimmy Isaac's column uh focused on the local garage alternative punk music scene.
2: And that's a point to be had. There was the one of the reasons of the group we knew sort of get up and going. There was zero other alternatives with nothing, no one, no other publication that was dealing with the punk scene.
0: So this was a vital resource for the community. This was love it or hate it, like you needed to pick up Boston Groupie News to find out what was happening.
2: Yeah, and people were rabid about it. They wanted to be in it. Any group wanted to be in the Groupie News. It was like a thing. We had a, not had power, but influence. It was like people had groups, and the idea was to get in the Groupie News.
1: And that we, I know that there's one issue, early issue, where we published a photograph of a band on stage and people in the audience, and the people in the audience are reading the Boston Groupie News. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, cool, yeah. And Paul, you got involved in kind of a funny way with the magazine, you started, you did this parody of Boston Groupie News called No Good Groupie News. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, he did one issue and he sent it to me. And yeah, yeah it was a parody.
0: <laughs> well, what he- were you hoping to accomplish by by putting that out and sending it? Were you hoping that, like, was that like your CV to Miss Lynn to say, hey, I want to get involved with BGN?
2: You know, absolutely not. And that's a good question, though. And you would think so. I was, my story was, that gets into my story, which was I was on the scene and I was doing comedy bits for radio shows. At, and during the early days, there was the Boston Phoenix. There was one radio show that was Oedipus on WTBS, which is now MBR which is the MIT radio station. He had a show, I think it was Sundays originally for two or three hours. And he played the very few records that were out. There was Ready Teddy, maybe a single. There was The Boys, maybe the Mark Thor. There was a Fox Pass single. There was only a handful of singles, but somehow he added Cheap Trick and other groups and he got a show and I, with everybody was listening on the scene. So, anyways, I decided it's punk. I have to get in on this. So I started doing comedy tapes and he started playing them. So I sort of thought of myself as like, you know, I'm on the scene. I'm the comedian on the scene. So I just took the groupie news as a target. I thought, here it is. People are looking mm-hmm. at the groupie news. Okay. I'm going to do my version. I'm going to do a parody of it. <laughs> And that was my only idea was that was my job as the local sort of punk comedian to take this target and, you know, put something out. What happened was I sent it to her. And then a month later, she sent the next issue of the groupie news. And some of what I wrote in that no good groupie news was in the official
1: groupie news. (laughs) And I thought, what the
2: the hell?
1: Well, so I got it in the mail and I have to say, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And so one of the things we were just talking about was when I did start doing the the groupie news, I wanted to take advantage of the fact that I had this medium to communicate to other people and I wanted it to be something other than just a stupid gossip rag. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I started covering who was in the studio What record was coming out a little bit in there and then when paul sent me the no good groupie news i just i thought it was brilliant and so i sent him a letter and i said do you want to work with me and uh he you know in there he just sort of had the humor had some intellect in there and things that that weren't in the bgn at the time that that i did want in there so Mm -hmm. joined forces
0: Amazing. How how did collaboration work between you guys when when Paul joined? How would it work? Like, how would you put an issue together, for example? Would Lynn? Would there be things that you would do, like the layout and interviews, or or was it totally like an organic combined thing? How did that work out? A good
2: question. Well, and I think, it changed over time. Yes. Originally, it was I fed her material, a few lines and stuff like that,
1: and he would say things like you know, I'm thinking, why don't we have this diagram of what makes up a punk? And, you know, like, he'd come up with these ideas. Uh, Let's, well, later on, like, let's do a board game. And everything, I mean, I think we just naturally worked really well together. And he would come up with these ideas. And I loved every one of them. And sometimes it would be like photos, like, bums of the stars, shoes of the, (laughs) different things like that day in the life yeah so and then we start right then we started doing columns like a day in the life the kids are all right when we interviewed local scene stars and um the other thing was that paul i was unemployed for the longest time when i was doing the bgn and um, before you get to that let me just
2: say at the beginning what i didn't have was ambition and vision when that was all in because i can remember what Originally, it was one-sided gossip page. That's all the groupie news was. Linda turned it into like a four-page gossip newsletter. And then then one day she says, you know, we're going to interview Matthew McKenzie of Ready Teddy. And I can remember saying, we can't do that. She said, well, well, why not? says, because we're the fucking Boston groupie news. We're just a little stupid, you know, piece of toilet paper here, you know. And she had this idea that it was going to be bigger. And I did not have that vision at all. And then later, I can remember her saying, OK, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have a cover. We're going to have Willie Loco on the cover of the Groupie News. And I thought, this is impossible. A cover of the Groupie News? It was ridiculous. But she had those ideas. She had this vision of, of a bigger Groupie News that was going to be transformed into what it became. I never had that. I had ideas for some of the content, but the overall idea that it was going to grow, no, I didn't understand that. But you can talk about the money though.
1: Oh, and so so what happened was I was unemployed and I, I didn't have a lot of money. So, you know, I was bringing, at that point, I guess it was four pages, you know, an 11 by 17 to the printer and printing a few copies. Paul was working at the, um, post office at the time, he was like Mr. Moneybags in my, in my mind, he like had a full time job was had a real salary and all that kind of stuff. So he was very willing to help pay for it. So that was also fed into my ideas about more pages, more photographs, you know, photo cover photo and things like that. So we were able to start expanding it and really make it into something else because we had more money.
2: And at that point, it changed from Xerox to offset printing. Is that yes. true? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Because that's better quality. Yeah. And that was a whole process. And you talk about putting the magazine together. And that was a big deal. We would just get all these ideas together. Miss Lynn would be writing the gossip. We'd, ha- we'd always think, okay, we'll have an interview. And then we think, what else are we have going to have in there? And we'd come up with all these things that you have the issues you see there. The idea was to have something that was interesting, that wasn't obvious. Miss Lynn and I both had this thing. We didn't want the Groupie News to be an interview and reviews, interview and reviews, because every magazine you picked up was interview and reviews. So we wanted to have other stuff. So we, we would come up with all these ideas, a day in the life and a photo collages, you know, drawings. We took uh, comic strips, shot comic strips from local guys like Frank Rowe, who was in uh, Classic Ruins, and Mark Bell of Thunder Train would do drawings for us. So we would, over the course of a month or two, get all that together. When we thought we had enough, Miss Lynn used to type it up, cut
1: and paste it. Yeah, this was in the days when you actually did cut and paste things there. There's a reason things are called cut and paste on a computer because Is you it? actually did cut and paste. And um, uh, there was a graphic design store in Harvard square and they had like the letters that you would rub them.
2: The yeah, transfer mm-hmm.
1: yeah, for letters. Yeah. So, you know, I was literally cutting and pasting the whole thing together. I, it, was, it was fun to do.
2: Yeah. And she would do that and then bring it to the offset printers who would take a photo of it and then that's yeah, the way they work. Good. I have some of those photos of the original Boston Groupie News. But it was a whole process. And you know, you asked one of the questions you have listed is like, uh, what was the scheduling like? Was it monthly, bi-monthly, whatever? <laughs> and we never had that any idea when it was coming out. We would cobble the information together and when it looked like we had enough elements, we would say, okay, let's go for it.
1: And, and I so regret, it. I very much regret never dating those things.
2: Yeah, we got the general dating on the on the <laughs> website now, but the specifics, it's hard to pin it down.
0: I, I think that's part of the mag's charm. It doesn't take itself seriously. You, you mentioned that like there were some ambitions like Miss Lynn wanted to include interviews and, and like offset printing and, and maybe like halftone photos and things but it's still this local mag filled with like juicy gossip. And it reads like something that you've created, especially for friends in the Boston scene.
2: Yes, and you know, we did not have any ambitions that this was like a national thing or, you know, we didn't wanna get ahead with it. We didn't wanna make money with it. We just wanted it to be covering the scene, having fun. That's what it was, yep. That's what it is today. And I would like to say, just to jumping ahead, the, the original group of news was that gossip page. And Miss Lynn was sort of known as the group of news went along for doing that gossip. And when we come to do the online version, which would be 2002, my thought, the first thing I had was you know, when people come to this site, the first thing they should see is that gossip, the idea of, of someone talking to you right now, saying, this is this week in February right now, and this is what's going on. And that's what I didn't see in other websites. And that's what was the first thing in every groupie news. The first thing was the gossip.
1: Yeah.
0: And it's so, it seems so like counterintuitive where a lot of, a lot of fanzine level things wanted to graduate to become like national level, international level sort of magazines and have something to appeal to a broad audience. But what you did was like still quite counterintuitive, like you're making something that is not for everyone. You're like, no, people outside the Boston scene are not going to get some of these references. This is very much about inside jokes. This is like a labor of love for people in Boston. We're not really interested in growing it into something big and generic that somebody across the planet can really understand.
2: Yes, and yeah, absolutely true. Yeah.
1: Yeah. In the in the later years, when you know, I say later, I mean maybe 80, 81, 82, 83, there were other magazines out there, Boston Rock and whatever, and they did have a broader coverage. And that's not even what we wanted to do. We had a specific scene we were trying to cover in Boston.
2: And we were talking earlier too that. Our website right now, BostonPunkNews.com. our focus is local punk. Mm-hmm. Is, we're not pretending. I mean, if you want to know about Boston Punk, you come to us. If you want to know about anything else, uh, don't come to us.
0: Yeah, and that niche thing is so – like with this podcast, for example – it's it's just a very niche topic. I know that there's like a limited audience for it. And, you know, well-meaning family members will say, why don't you have like this on the show? And, and I know some musicians, maybe like friends will offer like ideas. I'll say, no, this is, this is very niche. Like this is not for everyone, but I hope to find the people who are like interested in this. I like the idea that not covering all kinds of things and being so broad.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of people out there covering things. It's, It's sort of neat to be uh, in one specific place. And we, you know, are two people. These other magazines, Boston Rock came out. And uh, there was like, there's 30 people on that masthead. You know, other magazines, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of talent. There's a lot of money. And we're only two people. So we really don't have that, don't have a choice. we got to really, you know, keep it limited.
0: You guys mentioned some of the features like you would do like, Take pictures of like the bums of seamsters and the shoes of like seamsters and do like a day in the life of, it seemed to be as much about like the bands, but also as much about the people in the scene as the musicians. Is that fair?
2: Definitely. Absolutely. And that's why we had that column, the kids are all right, right. because it was, we we would go out, the scene was, especially at the beginning, you'd go out and the most obvious thing after a month or two is, you know, I keep seeing the same people here. Whereas in real life, before this, you'd go to clubs, you would just, you would be different people every week. But during these punk shows, it was the same people. So the people, you came interested, you knew the people. So that was definitely the thing. So we would see these people that were nothing but, you know, fans. We thought, let's put them sort of in front of the camera.
1: Yeah, because do- you know, the scene is made up, not just of musicians. And so a lot of, like ourselves. Uh, You know, I Mm -hmm. don't play an instrument, Um, so my contribution is to, was to write the BGN, and there are other people out there that just love the music, and were there all the time, they were paying a cover fee, they were helping to support the bands, and they were important to the scene as well.
2: And, you know, the other thing with that point is, it was about the, the people on the scene, but also the people in the bands, the idea of a day in the life. And uh, later we did Lifestyles of the Poor and Unknown. And we would (laughs) take one of the uh, people in the bands and we would do a photo collage. So the idea there was to play with, you know, the the person because we just we saw this person in the group all the time. Well, we're going to have fun with this person. So, yeah, that's part of it.
0: It's neat to see you like musicians you admire and just sort of bring them down to earth. And be like, oh, I wonder what they eat for breakfast. Like that kind of level stuff, right? Like what cereal do they enjoy? It just kind of humanizes people.
2: You don't remember the um, punk magazine with uh, Hallstrom, you know, in New
0: York? They did. Oh the, yeah.
2: They did the photo with you know Blondie and uh, the Ramones and stuff, and I took inspiration from that.
0: Yeah, and I. I've been enjoying the issues that you sent me, like very kindly shared with me. And there's there's that kind of, the word that comes to mind is fun. There's, it also reminds me like a little bit of, like some of these kind of features of photos and like funny captions remind me a little bit about cre- of cream or rock scene fanzine, but it has like a different integrity and, and maybe a bit more raunch to it.
2: I can't believe you just said that because we would talk. <laughs> Just before we were talking, and Miss Lynn, I said, I asked Miss Lynn, what did you see the BJM? What were you, what was, what did you think it could be? What were you aiming for? And she said, rock scene and cream. Yeah. He said that. You know what I used to think about was the National Lampoon and uh, uh, Mad Magazine. I used to think <laughs> because they take subjects and make fun of them and they, and they take different formats. That was a big thing t- for me too. The format, the idea of a photo collage, or lyrics, our um, dialogue, they would take uh, something, a chapter from a book, they would take different formats and make fun of it. And that's what I was trying to do too. But fun, it's always it all about fun. And you know, what's funny is in the early days during punk, everyone talked about boredom. I'm so bored with the USA. Uh, I'm bored. Uh, I'm by, the chairman of the board. Yeah, we call it uh, Niagara, that yeah. group. She destroy all monsters. But we were having fun, fun, fun. It was not boring at all. It was the most exciting time of my life, Yeah, those late 70s.
0: I think the fun also comes through in the interviews that you guys did. They, they tend to be like these casual conversations that start off with you know, like like some, some informal questions, and they always go to interesting places.
2: Oh, <laughs> great. You know, it's been a long time since uh, we read them. I like them because some of the interviews we were talking about are favorite ones. And, uh, well, there's The Damned, which uh, that's a whole story. But we interviewed Matthew McKenzie of uh, The Ready Teddy, and you can hear his voice in there, and he's dead now. But if you read mm. that, you can... I can hear him and picture him so vividly because he comes through in the style and how he talks. And that's really a great gift to have. And we did the Nervous Eaters and their drummer, Jeff Wilkinson, he's also passed on. And if you, he doesn't say much, but what he says there, you can just see his personality. You can grasp it right out of the interview. And I think that's
0: really a great
2: service that
0: we did there. It's not an easy thing to capture. Like, what is this person like? What is it like standing next to them, having a drink with them? And I think, yeah, you guys capture that really well in the interviews.
2: Yeah, I think and I, my one of my regrets is maybe we didn't do more. Yeah, It was hard. One of the things in that period is I was working 50, 55 hours a week. I was working a lot, six days a week. Uh, Linda, uh, Miss Lynn was working. And I was also in a band. I was also on the radio busy, busy life, trying to have a relationship. So the groupie news was sort of in there, but it was, we couldn't spend all our time doing it. So there are things we probably could have done more, probably could have done more of them and maybe better, but that was the best we could do at the time.
0: You mentioned the interview with the Damned, which which I was reading a few days ago. And It it seemed like a white, like they came across like these sex crazed hooligans. Is that kind of fair to your experience? (laughs) That's a good way to put it. They
1: they were the funny thing is now as an older person looking back on this stuff, you know, we were like 20, 21. We were kids. The the Cap Sensible, Rats they were just 20 year old little guys. And so they it's funny because uh, several years ago. Uh, I saw Cap Sensible, and I went sat with him, and I said, "You know, I did an interview with you when you first came to Boston," and he got all like, "Oh, oh, well, you know, I'm a happily married man now," with that. <laughs> and <laughs> it's funny because he can remember what he was like back then, and they were just crazy, crazy. Yeah, that was
2: the most insane time I ever had. On their whole punk years. I can't remember a time that was crazier than that <laughs> and intense and just so much packed into that half hour in that back
0: room of the rap. It was just an amazing time. The max focus was on Boston musicians, Boston artists and who are some of the ones in your mind that should have been huge but didn't really make it on a big level. Well, well,
2: the obvious. Well, you know, the number one group. The number one group. Everyone says is the neighborhoods.
0: Do you, do you know yeah. the neighborhoods at all? I like. I think I've read references on the BGN website, but I don't really know much about them.
2: Wow, that's wild. They're the group that almost everyone. If you asked anyone, that would be the name that would come up. Uh, there's another group, the outlets, and they are, would be the other group that people would talk about. They were explosive you know and uh, the thing with the neighborhoods was they were very like mainstream that people anyone in the mainstream would would love but any you got any names you want to throw well i
1: would say the nervous eaters yeah but you know one of the things i actually asked maybe in in the interview with the nervous eaters was about the lyrics that steve Cataldo wrote it was sort of like a guarantee that they would never go anywhere because they had these like x-rated lyrics that we're not, I think a lot of record companies would not want to put out there and certainly wouldn't get played on the radio back then. But the Nervous Eaters were a great band. And if their lyrics were a little different, I would have thought that they would get picked up. And
2: Willie Loco, Alexander, he had a good shot. Do you know uh, Willie Loco or heard his records?
0: I do, yeah. I had like a compilation CD years ago that I don't have anymore, but yeah, absolutely.
2: Okay, because he was... At the forefront, there's a whole book that could be written about Willie. He was at, during those early days. He was at the center of the Boston Punk scene. He was really the nugget in the middle because he had little history in the '60s with the Lost, and he had a high profile. And whenever he played, the whole scene came out. Like, and there were some amazing, amazing nights we spent in a club listening to the boom boom man they were amazed so in retrospect the main groups like that we should have made it the, the neighborhoods the outlets really loco the nervous eaters the liars maybe mm-hmm. but now look you know we have a whole alternative history here we think all our groups like you know the neats and yeah well and unnatural acts we think they were the great groups of the 70s,
0: you
1: know, well, and the real kids, I think, I mean, one of the, the things, I've kids. Said, one of the things I've said in an interview before about the real kids is that um, John Felice wrote anthems. He had some amazing lyrics and songs with the lyrics and they, you know, they toured Europe. They had some some markets come out, but every band from Boston just seemed to, you know, somehow.
2: I can remember, I've told this story before, being in the, I remember being in the RAT 76, 77, hearing the real kids getting chills go up my spine and thinking, this is like seeing the Beatles at the cavern. This is the greatest group that ever could be. And I am in this club and there's only a hundred people here, whatever it is, or less than that. Yeah, there's hundred if you're lucky. Yeah, probably 50. And no one they're not knocking down the door to see this group this is the greatest group ever that's how
0: great we thought they were people who know like know how special that first album but but subsequent albums as well too by the real kids are all really strong right
2: oh i gotta got tell you the last uh shake out of control which just came out uh just before the pandemic about a year maybe that's fantastic they have a
0: lot a lot of great material out there yeah John Felice, he's still active, is that right? I know he's had some health problems over the years. Well, he, yeah, he has health problems. He is out there. He's, he was on a, a, he just did a
2: song on a compilation for uh, Asa Brebna, who used to be in The Modern Lovers. They had a uh, tribute album for him, and John did a song on that. So he was in the studio within this last year or two. But he's not doing a lot. He has a lot of health issues. We got an interview with him. Oh, boy, when was that? In uh,
1: About four years ago. Four, at years least
2: years ago. four years ago, yeah. So it's a later interview, very revealing. It's online.
1: And John is not on Facebook or any kind of social media, so nobody really hears from him. Yeah.
0: What did you guys think of the Boston hardcore scene? Would you say yay or nay to that stuff? Oh, boy.
2: I. You want to say it? Different world? No. no well, yes and no.
1: Yes and no. Yeah. I think we we went to a lot of shows like at the Gallery East, which was the first place that a lot of the hardcore bands yeah. played. Uh God, I remember just, you know, mouth agape, like, what the hell is going on? Because everyone was stage diving and having broken noses and bleeding and everything. Uh, we also did interview some of those bands like the FUs. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so it was an offshoot a few years later. I think there were a lot of good bands that came out of that.
2: Well, I got to say, I was on the radio at that time too. And a lot of the punks were, you know, what would you say? They, they sort of took a step back when they heard uh, hardcore. It was an affront. Even for a punk, that was hard music, that right in your face. And I thought that a lot of the DJs didn't, punk DJs did not play a lot of hardcore, they were shying away from it. And to the point where hardcore people had to have their own radio shows and hardcore people basically had their own clubs. They weren't in the punk clubs. So as the years went on, I learned to love the hardcore. And now I would say I love hardcore now way more than I ever did back in the day. And we feature it now much, much more often online. Yes. Is uh, we definitely are in on that, you know, spreading the word on any hardcore shows and, been to many 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 hardcore shows in these last uh you know say 15 years or so so i I learned to love it but i have to say that in that initial burst it i was shy to it too
0: Did it have sort of a different spirit a lot of this was kind of straight edge informed like really maybe a bit self-righteous whereas a lot of the boston stuff we're talking about from that 70s era was was really fun and spirited in a different way did it just seem too sort of different to come to grips with at the time.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, the la- a little bit of the later hardcore was violent. We They had that Boston squad, whatever they call them, that were out there just uh, doing random violence. That's sort of documented. So, you know, it was a little off-putting there, I have to
0: say. How about, did you guys ever get into art rock stuff, more like the proletariat and Mission of Burma? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And we, there
2: was a club in Boston called the underground and they dealt with a lot of those groups. They're known for that. And uh, yeah, we love those groups, like the propeller groups, we call them here. Cause it was a label called the propeller, but a lot of art groups we had, a, we featured bound and gagged on the groupie news. I think they would be considered an oh, art group and yeah. uh, uh, dangerous birds, dangerous birds. And oh, what's her name? Judy map, the maps we, we loved the art rock. Yeah, it was fabulous. And uh, uh, Phobia, there was a lot of good art rock groups. Yeah. But we didn't, they came in a little bit later. We probably didn't feature them in the print versions of the uh, Groupie News. Yeah, because, you know, when you think of it, the, the overall scene, we were coming out, we stopped around 83 somewhere. And the indie thing, that sort of exploded around that point.
0: The sense I'm getting from from our chat is that venues were very important to the scene as well. Could you tell me a bit about, say, The Rat, which Wikipedia tells me that The Rat is considered like the granddaddy of Boston rock venues. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I actually worked for uh, Jimmy Harold when he put out the Live at the Rat album, so I was there quite a bit. But uh, it had a reputation. He had a lot of tough guys as bouncers and doormen there and uh but it was really like a home away from home because he jimmy harold was open to letting these bands that really nobody else would let play play in his club and i think you know we were thankful for that he was there among us when the bands were playing and a lot of times he was sort of like what the hell is this about but he let it happen uh, he yeah. jump-started
2: it by being adventurous and booking yeah. uh, Mickey clean in the meds now. But there's so much talk about the rat. The rat sort of has made its history. It's it's there. People and anyone you talk about that was around for like those 20 years, they were all going to the rat. It was like a the, that was the center of the uh, wheel, right? there was the hub. But there were other clubs. One of the main clubs that was there very early was called The Club and that was in Cambridge in uh, Central Square and they were right there you know neck yeah. and neck with the rat in those early years
1: i mean i actually the first ramones gig and the first blondie gig because it was the two of them playing together was at the club the
2: club yeah not the rat and then after the club uh there was a, a club called cantones and that was in the financial district of boston the financial district would empty out at night and this is one club in the middle of it, and uh, that one went on for years. That was a really beloved club. When when the rap became very, very popular, it would jam up. People sort of went to the uh, Cantones a lot because it was less people knew about it. Then there was a space nearby there called The Space. Across the street from the Cantones. is a place called Mavericks that had a short history, but that was there. The place I called the Underground. That was in a different section of town. I'm trying to think of different clubs.
1: There was uh, Streets, which was oh, in Austin. Streets, yeah, and yeah. there was what was the place that was right there on the corner in in Kemmer Square. Down.
2: Oh yes, yeah, Storyville. Yeah. Yeah, Kenmore Square had Storyville and The Rat there at one point. And I would just like to say that on our site, bostongroupendness.com, I have a page that just lists all the Boston clubs. A lot of the locals actually look at it to try to remind themselves of all the clubs that have come and
0: gone and stuff like that. Are any of these clubs still around? Uh, Oh, uh, as you say- Like come back in the day, like Cantones, The Space, The Club, The Underground. Are any of them still active?
2: No, but that reminds, none of the ones we mentioned are there, the rat's gone. But that reminds me, there is one club that was around very, very early, and it's still there. And it's a club that most people wouldn't mention, and that is the Paradise. That's true. The Paradise was there, right? I'm not sure how soon after the rat it was there, but it was there. Matter of fact, it, under a different name, it was called Dummies. Third Rail had a uh, show there. and they were pretty early and definitely in 77. They were there in 77, maybe 76. So I have to look that up. But they are still going. That club has been there for 40 years. Yeah. yeah. And But they're not a, a, a local club. I wouldn't consider that like a, it's, it's more like a, a medium-sized club with a, you know, a raised stage. And it takes, I don't know how many people, a thousand, I don't know what it is and they sell tickets you know you go to ticket hub or something to get it it's not like uh some guy owns a bar and it has groups it's a it's a step up but they've been around for a long time
0: do you guys think some of the new venues that have come up since then do they have the same sort of personality and, and sort of importance as the old ones are they are they are some of these still places that are more than just like a music venue a place to i think the uh, mid- promote musical culture and mm-hmm.
1: I, I think Absolutely, the, yeah. The Midway is the one that comes to mind first, and also never gets mentioned by the press, which I don't understand. But uh, the Midway is a small club. They have great music there, and it's it's in a it's in a neighborhood in Jamaica Plain. There's nothing else around there really. Yeah, it's not that easy to get to either by public transportation, really. But they have, it has a great feel to it. It definitely is a place that could feel like home the way the rat did, I think.
2: Well, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the clubs have personalities. I don't think they're deficient in that way at all. Like the current clubs, I think, are equal to the old clubs. Uh, Great Scott, which closed just before the pandemic, is going to reopen a different spot. They had a great feel to that club. O'Brien's. O'Brien's is a small, small club. If there's 50 people in O'Brien's, you feel like you're jammed, you know, cheek to jowl. And they have a great uh, management, makes you feel friendly all the time. Like you said, the Midway, the Middle East is the main club in Cambridge, which has the most show. They have like five rooms, three of Mm -hmm. them. A very small, uh, uh, yes. I say two very small and three medium size. One one of those is actually very big, and they have things. It's like a whole city there. So that's
0: wonderful in its way. They've kept that going for a lot of years. Paul, I've got to ask you this. I understand Jonathan Richmond asked you to tour with him back in the late '70s. Can you <laughs> tell that story?
2: Okay, I should tell you that. unbelievable when you think of it now, but true. Yes. OK, so this starts with the fact that I was a comedian and doing audio bits for disc jockeys online in 70, 76 and 77. So I did all these bits for um, Oedipus on WTBS and for the Late Rises Club, which I later became a disc jockey during their show. But I would feed them comedy bits. So. At one point, I put out a record of those comedy bits. It's called Blowfish and the New Wave. And on that that record, you can get it on eBay for 50 bucks or something. uh, I have a parody of Jonathan Richman. And I have him saying, like, doing Roadrunner and making the trip to the stop and shop as a sort of as a complicated direction. You know, you go down 128. and you take three rights by the old school house where it used to be, and then you take three lefts at the rock that looks like a bear, or is it a bear that looks like a rock? Blah, 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 you know. And uh, anyway, and also, as far as Jonathan Richmond's go, we wrote a review of one of his, I wrote a review of one of his records, and he wrote back a one-page letter. He wrote a whole thing giving, saying thank you, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, so he knew about me. He knew about that record, definitely. And he, he knew two people I knew. He knew uh, uh, Fred Pinot, who was in the Atlantics. He used to be in the Atlantics. And he knew Denise Donahue, who used to do photos for the Boston Groupie News. And she was married to Frank Rowe of Classic Ruins. They both knew Jonathan. And Jonathan talked to them about me he, to find out, blah, blah, blah. So they – and he gets – my phone number from them so he calls me up blah 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 he says "Uh, i'm jonathan richmond i can hardly believe this i wanna i was thinking maybe of doing a tour i'd like you to come on tour with me i thought tour doing what you know (laughs) i mean i'm sitting in my house now meanwhile i play guitar in a group and i'm thinking i'd love to play guitar behind jonathan so he says well to do some of your your bits that are on you know your record and blah 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 I said, well, I've never done any of those live. Uh, those are just on audio tape. He said, well, yeah, well, you can do those. And he talked a little while. He said, well, look, it, why don't you come over to my place and we'll talk about it. And I'll tell you what I have in mind. OK, so this is in December. And that's part of the story. It's in the middle of December, in the middle of the winter. I go over to Green Street, I think it was, Harvard, right near Harvard Square, the street ends in Mass Ave, which goes into Harvard Square. He's on the second floor of this two-story house. I go up there. There's no furniture in the apartment. There's a mattress in one one room on the floor. And there's no chair, anything in the main room, in the living room. There's a record player on the ground and records strewn all over the place. Not in the (laughs) street. And my heart sank, because I'm a record collector. I'm thinking, put those records in sleeves. But, so, and there's also balloons in the room, you know, blown up balloons on the ground. And a little crazy. I thought, this is insane. So anyways, he starts talking. What he wants to do is to have this traveling group of people, like, I don't know how many, like a half a dozen or so, musicians, and then me, and it's, this would be a loose group. It wouldn't be any specified program. They would be talking, and they would go out, and they would maybe be on stage at the same time. Maybe one go out at the same time. Very free, very you know, off the cuff. Do this song, do that song. No groups. We you know. You no know, amplifiers and drums. Basically, it would be more quiet. Jonathan, that he was just going in that direction without a group at that time. Before then, was always a group, but he was getting this idea that there wouldn't be, you know, a group in quotations. There it would just be him with the guitar and other people with guitars and stuff. And I would be doing my comedy bits, and in BMC. And I just couldn't see that. I just, I have no experience on stage to this date. I don't think I could do it, but especially I couldn't do what I was doing on on, uh, those tapes because I was doing a lot of sound effects and stuff and I would work up to it and give myself every positive, uh, you know, thing I could get to get it done right. I couldn't just wing it on stage. You wouldn't have the confidence, not especially with Jonathan Richmond on the stage. So, anyways, he, I said, no, I still, I couldn't do it. So he says, well, okay, well, you, um, it's not going to be a group. Let me just show you what I'm going to do, so you get an idea of what is going to happen. So then he proceeds to do a whole set of songs, like, you know, ten songs. And with no accompaniment.
0: For you, like a private
2: performance. Absolutely. For me. Did he have a guitar? He did not have a guitar. I think he had a guitar maybe to the side and he would pick it up and he played like one song. But then he would just go and he would sing with that. He had a baseball mitt and he would sing a song about a baseball guy and he would slap the mitt and then you know, Jimmy McGonaghy threw the second. Jimmy McGunny, he came home to base. And that was the way he sang a song. And a lot of them were just acapella. And then sometimes he would punctuate the song by stamping on a balloon. <laughs> Allah, that was why the balloons were in the room. So meanwhile, this takes like about a half hour, of course. And during that half hour, this is like 3.30 in the middle of December. It begins to get dark. It's the light, there's no lights on in the apartment and the light outside is getting darker and darker. By the end of his set, it's completely black. And it's like, this is bizarre. This is the (laughs) most bizarre. Am I really in this room? I don't know whether to clap. I did clap a little bit. I don't know what to do in this particular situation. So anyways, he does that and he's blah, blah, blah. And I still say, I'm sorry, I really, I can't do it, you know? Yeah. I turned down Jonathan. And, you know, he never did that thing that he, uh, the way he described it to me, he never did that. So I felt like I put the kibosh on that.
0: It sounds like it would have been like this crazy, like open mic style tour where like anything goes. (laughs) Yeah. He was thinking, of course, he's the
2: anti- you know rock biz guy he's thinking low-key show with just a bunch of you know creative people that's the way he's thinking you know yeah that was always his model i he you know he talks about um i remember him talking about i don't know whether he told me this yeah he did tell me this that time that then he he was thinking of uh what's his name uh 12 string guitar lead belly Hmm talking, he was reading about Lead Belly and how Lead Belly would go around, and he would just show up at these, you know, chicken shacks, or these clubs that the local, you know, farm workers would have, and they would just turn into a club at night, and Lead Belly would show up with his 12-string guitar, and he'd do a show, and that's what was in Jonathan Richmond. He liked that idea. He didn't like Coming into a club with four guys, three amplifiers, and a set of drums and playing at a loud volume. That was, at the time I was talking to him, he was putting that idea to bed. Anyway, that's by Jonathan Richmond's story.
0: I love it. He is, whatever you think of, like, the kind of turns his career took, like, he's definitely following his own beat and doing his own thing, even if he's kind of beating it out on a, on a baseball mitt.
1: Yeah, now no, when he tours, it's just him and a drummer.
2: Yeah. I love him now more than ever because of the way he's done things and the road he's taken. And if you follow him now, he's on Bandcamp, by the way. He does podcasts on Bandcamp. If oh, you go, cool. Yeah, just go, uh, Google him in Bandcamp. You'll get to his page. And it's wonderful stuff. And he just put out an album. And he had an album about a year ago. And he, it's really, I don't know. I just think he's doing the, no one else can do it. Yeah. Yeah. He brings a lot to what he does.
1: And, you know, we went to see him a few years ago at the Middle East. Yeah. And it, you know, it's just him and a drummer. And I don't know you get transported to a different place with him. It's it's just complete entertainment somehow. And it's I think it's all Jonathan. It's his personality. It's the way he presents himself. The kinds of things he does like singing in different languages, different styles of music. yeah, he's just
0: he's he something. He's just this guileless kind of inspired presence. And yeah. and yeah, he does his own thing and he invites you along. He's like, you you know, hopefully you enjoy what I do. If not, that's cool too.
2: Yeah, he has a song on his, you know, he's always people think of him as a a wonderful cherry and everything like that. But he has a song in its latest album. It's it's all about horrible things that happen. And he just lists all these, how, everything is horrible. This is horrible. He said, you know, it's not getting me down. I'm, it's, <laughs> anything can get him with that. It's not getting And he has like this positive thing. It's like, no one else would write a song like that.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm glad he's got a dark side and some humor there as well, too. That's awesome. Why did you guys stop publishing Boston Groupie News, the print version of it?
2: Yeah, we talked about this earlier to refresh ourselves on it.
1: Well, uh, mainly I think it was because at that time in the early 80s, I was working full-time and going to art school at night. It just became too much. I couldn't handle doing all that.
2: Yeah, and also by 1983, we stopped around 83. By 83, the war was over. Yeah. And by the war, I mean, like we were talking about earlier, The punk had such an attitude. We had, there was a lot of, uh, what you call it, violence on the scene at that point. There's a lot of tension. Punk was fighting for attention and, you know, fighting for its place in rock history. And by 83, all that was done. You know, punk was sort of history, you know, indie rock was coming in and it was established. There were plenty of clubs and more importantly, there were plenty of magazines. In Boston, there was Boston Rock magazine, which had a ton of people working on it. There was a noise magazine that had 30 people in its masthead Had a lot of people working. And there was a few other small zines and even the national magazines like um, Rolling Stone and spin. Is that spin? Yeah. They had, you know, articles on punk. It was very, even articles on local punkers like the Neats and Willie Loco and stuff. They were getting national press. So we were redundant in 83 what we were doing was no longer you know that viable and it was originally when we started there was like we always used to say there's 200 people there's only 200 of the solid core people and by uh 81 there was a skillions of people who were sort of part of the scene it wasn't just a small scene anymore Mm -hmm. so i would say and we don't regret i don't regret stopping and eight that was the time to stop i thought we stopped at the at the correct time. It was no reason to go on for two people to beat our heads. Because I can remember specifically, we were saying we were going to interview this group and say, oh no, well, we just interviewed for Boston Rock just did us. Uh, okay. So we went to another group. said we're going to interview. Well, no, we just had an interview with this magazine. So we said, oh well, you know, what the heck? What are we doing? So I thought we stopped at the right time. But I will say something that you, you wouldn't know being out of town, especially. That after the Boston Groupie News stopped in 83, say, we kept doing the same thing, like those photo collages, A Day in the Life. And uh, we would do a night out at the club, and we did them for other magazines. We did pages for Boston Rock. We did pages for Noise Magazine. We did pages for there's a magazine out called Bang Magazine. So we were still working and doing Groupie News uh, basically photo stuff in other magazines. Cool. Yeah. So if you go, sometimes we talk to each other and go, gee, where is that, that article, that, that's, that display we did, you know, what issue is that in? Well, it's not in a group of news issue. It's in a, it's another issue, (laughs) another magazine
0: that we did. The fact that you guys stopped the mag didn't mean you stepped away from being involved in this music.
2: No, absolutely not. And I was on the radio, uh, for a couple of more years after that. And I did, we call it, audio bits, comedy bits for local DJs for a few years after that too. So things kept going.
0: When did the When did you guys get the idea to do the Boston Groupie News website?
2: And in the year 2000, I got a computer. So before that, you know, there was no way anything was going to happen. So in those two years between 2000 and 2000, I looked around and I saw what was out there. And what was out there was about three or four sites that dealt with the Boston scene. Uh, And I won't go through them, but they were what I would call static sites. Otherwise you would go to the site and there was a bunch of articles that were written about the Boston scene, and there were links. And
1: And they were old, it was
2: old information. Yeah, the information would be, say a year old or whatever. Mm. And they would maybe add a new, thing every now and then but the idea was to me I would say static so I I could see then that there was nothing like the groupie news where's the magazine that talks about the the you know the gigs that happened last week what about the records that are coming out this week who's talking about that there was nothing out there so I thought groupie news would be good for that so between I, I bought a book called uh html five five minutes a day to learn html (laughs) (laughs) and i read that book i gave it five minutes a day and i actually learned a lot out of that book i read it twice and then i bought software i never remember this i bought software at a discount store for five dollars how to build a web system was called hot dog oh yeah yeah hot dog (laughs) and the groupie news is built on that five dollar web building you know
0: software
1: that's why it looks so bad yeah.
0: <laughs> oh no <laughs>
1: there are so many sites out there that look so great And no, this is just
0: so by sad. 2000 by 2002
2: i learned how to do it you know so
1: and i remember he you contacted me saying Can you paul contact me somehow and, and he says so i think we should put the the groupie news online i'm teaching myself html and i remember saying oh i don't have time for that i'm doing my artwork, I'm working full-time. I don't have time to do that. Well, somehow it happened. You see, well, then what happened was I put on, I said, you know what I'm going to do?
2: Just put a page up because uh, I bought the URL, you know, Bostongroupynews.com I put up the website, uh, just a page. Hey, we're the Boston Groupie News. Remember us? We're going to come back soon. Well, we got a whole bunch of emails, of course. And that sort of prompted us going, oh my God, they're still out there. So we pushed ourselves to get online at and, that point.
1: And just, we were just talking about this beforehand. I I know I was pretty out of touch at the time with what was really going on. And uh, I uh, lived in the same uh, two family with Kenny Highland. I don't know if you know who Kenny Highland is. He was in the gizmos.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. He came up in, a, in one of the interviews I did actually with uh...
1: Oh, okay. Oh, yes.
0: Anything, I, think. I was married. Yeah. Well, yeah I was
1: uh, married to Kenny um, in the 1978 to 88, I guess, for ten years. Oh. And so Kenny bought a house in um, where we are now, and uh, he got married and they bought a house. And so I was the tenant in the first floor apartment. When BGN went up online, Kenny was playing out at a local club, and I was getting most of my information from him. I mean, I was like desperate to try to pull out any info from anybody that i could because i felt like i just had no clue what was going on anymore and so if you look at the the bgn now or actually just before the pandemic a few years before the pandemic and when our first online issues came out there's such a difference because it's you know there's barely any info there on those early online issues yeah
2: one of the ideas was just to get the print information online you know those interviews with the damned and with the real kids and stuff that was one of our primary things but uh we soon got involved things were happening like the real kid one of the first things i think was happening was the real kids movie was coming documentary was coming up which actually you may not know about because it never got released but there was a whole process where they were working on this uh real kids movie we were involved with the people and getting stories and doing things and it was it got us back into the swing of things
1: it's it's really funny because once we started it was like all of a sudden the nervous eaters had a reunion gig the all these different real kids had a reunion gig real kids had the movie uh, and then people started doing documentaries about the scene and all this stuff started happening again
2: yeah and, that's
1: true. It, and a lot of the bands from early on were all starting to reform don't know if it's because people got married and and had kids and then all that you know the kids grew up and now they could come back and do what they used to do i don't know what it was because that didn't happen to me but i think for a lot of that is what happened all of a sudden all the bands that we used to cover back then were out and about playing again so we had a lot of stuff to cover and then we started especially paul started finding out about local younger bands and there's so many great bands in boston well what ballooned.
2: Has, you know the groupie news is online has changed through the years uh originally like i said we were just getting up to speed and putting in uh, we spent a lot of time those first years posting older material which is still there and then we started expanding and doing reviews of things that were happening you know at, at, at currently at the real time and then at 10 years ago i retired And at that point, I started going out three nights a week. And the groupie news became live reviews. Every week I'd have, sometimes I'll look at some of these pages we have, because we archive all our old, uh, we we, we change it once a week, that main page. We archive those pages. Some of those pages, I'm going to have like a dozen bands in a week that I'm reviewing, which means I'll have videotapes and you know, I'll have uh, photos and reviews. It's a lot of stuff. So for 10 years, there's a pact with what's going on in the clubs. Then COVID hit.
1: Yeah. Well, I have to, I also want to add that we would go out to see bands or I would go out to see bands and I would come back and say, oh, you know, this guy's wearing tight pants and they sounded really great. And oh, he had great hairdo. And On the ride if Paul and I went out together, while Paul was driving me home, he we'd be talking about the bands and he'd say all this stuff about the music. And some of it I remember and repeat when I wrote up the reviews, and then I finally said, you know what, you have to start writing the reviews about these bands, because you know about music, you hear a 1000 things that I don't hear. So I think that was one of a big change for the that Washington was a reviews big news too.
2: That's when that main voice, which used to be the gossip voice, changed from uh, Miss Lynn and then it changed to me. Yeah, And we turned into like a, a little bit more of a serious, uh, you know, music review magazine. I
1: hated that I didn't know the things that he knows. And that I was writing this, I felt like stupid reviews. And I've written a few, he's like, oh yeah, they're, they're lively, they're nice, they're, you know, I feel like I was there, but they're not saying the stuff that he says, because he knows music, because he's a musician, Yeah. and he knows stuff I don't know, so he hears and can talk about things that I can't, and so that sometimes I think he feels like it's a burden that he has to do all that, but I think there's no other way to do it except to have him write that stuff. Yeah,
2: when COVID began, I got to tell you this, because having a website during COVID, we were basically a live music review site mm-hmm. overnight that disappeared. Yeah. So I thought, you know what I'm going to do here is I'm going to post something every week. Now there's going to be no live gigs. So if nothing happens, I'm just going to post nothing happens. The idea being I will be a diary. It would be like an online diary of what happened during this period. And if nothing happened, Well, then we'll be able to look back and we'll see that that things were so bad. But that's not what happened. What happened was people immediately started live streaming. People put out older material and some material that was in the pipeline. People started, they couldn't go out doing live uh, rock. So one of the guys is also an artist. So he did a live art show uh, every week.
1: Is that beer's bands and oh, banter
2: this is a group they couldn't play so they started up a video review show called beers no no it's called bands beers no i'm sorry yeah bands beers and banter so people were doing other things so we started writing about that and the most the biggest surprise in my life is that we have filled up that groupie news page every time all during this period is almost is awe-inspiring and uh, at the beginning of COVID, we had about 25,000 logins a month. Wow. Yeah. Now we have 29,000 logins. A month.
1: Almost 30.
2: Almost, we're just a few hundred from 30,000 last month. So we actually grew during these last three years, which Jeez. is crazy.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. It's really encouraging to hear that. It sounds like it's just as exciting for you guys to cover this music that's happening today as it was 30, 40 years ago.
2: It is more fun in some ways. It's, you know, it's less, it's less, you know, it was in the back in the days, I would say it was more exciting because some of it was, you know, there was that violence, there was danger. Also back in the day, there was something at stake. I was a disc jockey and the other, everyone around me sort of wanted to be, like a national disc jockey, they had ambitions. So there was a little bit of cutthroat going on there, even between the bands. The bands would wanna have a Friday night because there was a lot of money to be made on a Friday or Saturday night. And there was a little bit of a cutthroat competition there. And that sort of attitude is gone now. Now, nothing's at stake. No one can kid themselves they're gonna get ahead by playing punk rock music today. So now it's a lot more fun because it's less, tension that way you know there's less ambition i find it i just love it being out there and also before i used to be working I'd have to go out after working you know 40 hours a week or more and you'd be tired at the clubs now when i'm retired i go out. i'm i can stay out all night i don't have to go to work the next day so it's more fun not being tired out there and I love the music.
0: I think I'm out of questions. Is there anything you want to end on? Is there anything you want to add about the legacy of BGN? or?
2: I was going to say, one thing we were talking
0: about, if you asked us, was he, uh... oh,
2: yeah. If you asked us, what would you do differently if you could redo it? And you know what Miss Lynn would say?
1: I would have changed the name.
0: <laughs> the name? Make it something more serious, Miss Lynn? Or...
1: Yeah, definitely not groupy. <laughs> I think we both think that that's held us back.
2: Definitely held us back. People do not take you seriously when you're coming under the banner of the Boston Groupie News.
1: I mean, just think about it. I could think of like a band. I've, uh, often I've seen, you know, a band will have uh, quotes from from fanzines or magazines. And to have a quote from the Boston Groupie News, it just, it's so ridiculous. Although I
2: do, see, you know, because we're online, we do get a lot of quotes and uh I do hear, I do see those quotes, you know, they have a great punk group, says the Boston Groupie News. <laughs> so well, we call ourselves the BGN because we're trying to get around it. Gotcha. But it, it, we're not, but we're not changing. But you know, uh, it also keeps us a little bit humble though. And I, I take <laughs> that with, you know, we don't you can't be too grandiose with you know when they ask you, who are you with? I'm, I'm with the Boston. Good, good, good
1: girlie news, you know. You know, I have people at my day job, right? And they, most of them know I do a low quote, local music fanzine online. And when they ask me what it's called, I get so embarrassed to tell them the actual name. Oh, bust! I'll send you a link. Is what I usually say.
2: Yeah, and I would say, you know, looking back, what would you do differently? If we were saying, I think I wouldn't do much differently because doing it differently, we just require more time. I mean, I would have liked to have done it better, more be more consistent and have more features, but all of everything that would make it better would require more time. And we just didn't have the time back in the day. And I would not be willing to like, I was in a group and on the radio, I would would not be willing to not do that just to do the groupie news, you know, because, I don't know i wanted to do those other things too
0: no i think i think those issues are a blast they're a gas even for me like 40 years later i'm totally removed from the context many of the inside jokes go right over my head but the content still sucks me in because of the energy and i think as you guys have said like the lack of seriousness not lack of seriousness but taking yourself seriously i i think it's great it's thank you for saying
2: that because we don't get a lot of people with any perspective really giving us uh, you know, a view that, of that.
1: I have heard that a couple of times. Yeah. Either someone like in a band has reread an issue and said, oh my God, it just brings me right back there. And you know, the, they get that feeling that they had reading it back then.
2: And I'm glad not having ever thought of this and had no desire to be part of the fanzines, the whole idea of a fanzine, even as I began it, I didn't have this idea that, oh, I'm doing a fanzine. I It, it just wasn't an issue my, but in retrospect, I'm so glad I'm sort of part of the fanzine culture
1: Yeah,
2: that I'm, I'm part of that, because I, I didn't think of trying to be part of that.
1: Yeah, it's not like we started saying, oh, these bands are great, and we're gonna write just about these bands. It was more about the scene always oh, mm-hmm.
0: you weren't shooting for something like we want something that you know like people 20 30 years from now are going to read and say wow great no it was more like real time like yes. what's what's current right now what's what's the gossip that that people need to hear in the next week
2: yeah I feel like we're the original source if you were going to go back into history and look what was happening at that point I feel mm-hmm. like we're the original source you would read that and go that's the attitude these people had that's the you know the way they were doing things, and I think that's true of the Boston Groupie News right now too. You get the idea of what, how you think right now. So yeah, I think that's important.
0: Thanks a million to Miss Lynn and Paul for taking the time to chat. You can keep up with all the gossip at bostongroopynews.com. If you're looking for original back issues, try eBay. Thank you as always for listening, and please reach out to us on Twitter. Our handle is at RockCritPod. It's always a pleasure to hear from listeners. Take care and. See you next time.